Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, August 8th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Michael Phelps extends his streak as the most decorated Olympian. 19 gold, 23 overall medals. Most decorated, like a human gingerbread house. Kind of uncreative decorations, right? How about a medal? How about another medal? How about another gold medal? Who's the decorator on this project? And here's the thing about Michael Phelps. I'm an American. I love the guy, devoid as he is of personality. But man, can he swim. Still, the reason he's the most decorated is he's not a better swimmer than Carl Lewis was a runner or that any fencer is a fencer or that even some canoeist you've never heard of is a canoeist. It's just that they have so many different strokes and so many different distances. So in track, they have different distances. And there's one example where they have a different stroke, sort of. It's the speed walking. But we don't think of the breaststroke and the backstroke and the butterfly as we do the inherent joke that is race walking. But when you get right down to it, isn't every stroke beside the freestyle not going as fast as you can? So aren't they all different versions of race walking? And I'm sure Usain Bolt would be similarly decorated if there was a 100-yard dash, but also a 100-yard trot and a 100-yard gallivant and a 100-yard excited saunter. Yeah, I know it's meters, not yards. And yeah, I also know my argument is inherently anti-democratic, anti-Michael Phelps. Um, I'm sorry, but all this week I will be coming to you with Mike bitches about stuff that's actually right in the world. On the show today, I'm actually going to say some nice things about something that's wrong with the world, that wrong thing being Donald Trump. And we'll also talk about curious memorials in Rwanda. But first, a professor who is a student, estudiante, of Tim Kaine's speeches, discursos. If you've watched any of the speeches or public statements by Democratic vice presidential pick Tim Kaine, you might have noticed a little something. He likes to pepper in Spanish, sentences and sentences of Spanish, Spanish he learned and mastered while working in Honduras. Well, this certainly seems like a good thing in terms of outreach to Latin voters, but is it? Joining me now, Nelson Flores, professor of educational linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania. How are you, Professor Flores? I'm great. Thanks. Let's start with this. How's his Spanish? How's Tim Kaine's Spanish? Um, I think his Spanish is perfectly fluent. I think he's able to communicate in Spanish. To your ear, does it sound like an American accent? Does it sound like someone who is fluent but not, you know, super comfortable? What's it sound like? The Spanish that I've heard has seemed perfectly fluent and understandable. And in terms of the content of what he says, does he ever say anything interesting in Spanish that he doesn't say in English? 
Of the speeches that I've observed, it seems like most of the things that he says in Spanish, he also then reiterates in English. Which is odd in terms of natural speech, isn't it? It's not exactly Spanglish, which is just going from one to the other. He just is sort of translating as he speaks, right? Yeah, it certainly has an artificial feel to it. That isn't usually what happens when people are going back and forth between languages. And so what do you think the effect of this is on a native Spanish speaker? I think um, there probably are varying effects. I think on one level, people may feel a sense of pride that Spanish is a language that now is getting kind of national recognition by a candidate for vice president. But on another level, I think people that I've talked to sometimes seem to feel like it's kind of um, pandering a little, um, especially since most Latinos in the United States are perfectly fluent in English and don't necessarily need a Spanish translation, especially in a context like that. So what, but what about the other way around? So you say most uh, Hispanics or Latinos in the United States are perfectly fluent in English, but are most voters who are Hispanic, are they actually perfectly fluent in Spanish? No. Research certainly indicates that there's actually a shift from Spanish to English in the Latino community. So typically, by the third generation of being born in the U.S., typically people are either monolingual English speakers or are much more comfortable in English than they are in Spanish. And so do you think an effect might not even be outreach to Hispanic voters, but actually might be more to white voters who would like to think of themselves as voting for the kind of guy or party that's attempting an outreach to Latino voters? I suppose that that's a possibility. Um, Certainly in the conversations that I've been having about it, the group that has seemed to be most enthusiastic about his use of Spanish have been white liberals, many of them who also speak Spanish themselves. Among the Latino community, at least the people that I've spoken to, it's more of a kind of, okay, but what are your policy positions? What are you going to do that is actually going to help our community? Um, I think people are more interested in kind of his policy stances and what he stands for. Yes, but do you, is he found lacking on that score? Because it's true that every political campaign will engage in window dressing, but you know who else will engage in window dressing? A store that actually is selling those very goods. So sometimes window dressing is indicative of the reality. He certainly seems to have a strong stance in support of comprehensive immigration reform. Um, Of course, one of the downsides is that he's also been openly supportive of free trade agreements in Latin America that have actually increased the number of migrants coming from Latin America into the U.S. that has led to this need for comprehensive immigration reform. And so I think taking a closer look at his stances on Latin America, thinking about how the free trade agreements have impacted Latin America, thinking specifically about Honduras, where he did his um, volunteer work, thinking about Hillary Clinton and her roles, possible roles in the coup that occurred in Honduras, and kind of thinking about all of those things, I think are important for us to consider as well. Yeah, I was, uh, I wouldn't say surprised. He has a number of things going for him, but Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State where there was a coup and her explanations for why it was never called a military coup maybe bear some more scrutiny. Let's put it that way. Yes, and it would be interesting to see what Tim Kaine thinks about what happened in Honduras as well. And, and, you know, what do you think in four, in eight, in 12 years, what are we going to see? Are we going to demand bilingual candidates? Um, will monolingual 
lingual candidates be at a real disadvantage? Will we police politicians of Hispanic origin less for not speaking perfect Spanish? This was the case with Julian Castro and a couple of others who were on the short list for vice president, but uh, demerit was said to be that their Spanish wasn't great. There certainly is more scrutiny for Latino politicians and their Spanish versus a white candidate and their Spanish. And so you would never hear, at least in this current political climate, an expectation that a white candidate speak Spanish. And if they do, they're celebrated in the ways that Tim Kaine is celebrated. However, people like Julian Caso and others who I have seen conduct interviews in Spanish um, are oftentimes told or evaluated as not speaking perfect Spanish and oftentimes will identify that way themselves. Who's doing that policing? Is it white people or Hispanic people? Uh, Well, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's both. But we have to kind of understand what's happening within broader social processes. So it's not individuals kind of just making these things up for themselves, but there are broader language ideologies that then get taken up by people. Even 50, 40 years ago, um, Latinos were, they received corporal punishment for using Spanish in school in Texas and in other states even 40 or 50 years ago. And so that kind of history is something that has impacted the ways people see Spanish today. And so oftentimes it can be Latinos who are saying this person's Spanish isn't good enough or that person's Spanish isn't good enough, but that we really need to understand what's happening within broader histories um, and, and how it is that we've come to be where we are today. Gotcha. Nelson Flores is a professor of education linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania, and a version of this interview will be made available on the GIST Spanish language sister podcast, La Ascencia. Actually, that's not true. There is no Spanish language sister podcast. But did I say La Ascencia correctly? <laughs> you said it correctly. All right. That's all I wanted. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender.
History, it is said, is written by the winners, but that's not always true, especially in a complex area like Rwanda, the site of a genocide in 1994. Now the country is a success story, but there are wrinkles. The current leader of Rwanda is not leaving office easily. And in fact, this can be seen in a number of museums, some of them genocide memorials in the country of Rwanda. Michaela Wrong covers Africa, Congo, Eritrea, Kenya. She writes for foreign policy and Recently, her article, The False Idols of Rwanda's Genocide, caught my eye. Thank you for coming on the show, Michaela. It's a pleasure. So before we begin to talk about the memorials, just give us an overview of Paul Kagame, his government, his hold on power. Well, uh, Paul Kagame has really been running the country, um, although he didn't hold the post of president for for quite a large part of his, his reign since 1994. He was the head of the uh, RPF, a, a guerrilla movement that invaded from uh, Uganda and um, sort of pitched battles along the way. And finally, there was a, a showdown and the president's plane, the president juvenile, Habyar Imana, was brought down on April the 6th, 1994, And there's a lot of controversy over who brought that down. And it triggered what looks like it was a very carefully prepared genocide by the regime of juvenile Habyarimana targeting the Tutsi uh, population in particular. So when in the end the RPF, Kagame's rebel group, seized control of the country, it was in ruins and, you know, literally piles and piles of corpses. So he inherited an absolute traumatized nation. Uh, Many, many of uh, the Rwandans were refugees in neighboring Congo. He also inherited a very controversial reputation because the RPF, as it was uh, marching across the country after 1990, has also been accused of um, massacring uh, the local population of a sort of raised earth policies. And this is a sort of side of things that the government of today doesn't like to talk about. So a lot of people are very impressed by Kagame and his regime, rightly so in many cases, because they really have rebuilt and uh, Rwanda seen as this donor darling, a sort of model of of development. But it's also um, not exactly a place which has um, freedom of speech, human rights, active and vibrant opposition parties. And a lot of people, including people who were closest to Kagame, have left the country, um, many of his aides, and they live in fear because the regime does reach out and uh, has been accused by Human Rights Watch, uh, amongst other people, of, of assassinating and eliminating its its enemies abroad. One thing I wanted to know about Kagame, he is Tutsi, and they were they were slaughtered in the genocide. Not that Hutu weren't slaughtered also, but it was a genocide against the Tutsi. And yet Tutsi is minority ethnicity in Rwanda. Yes, the yeah. current government has called this the genocide of the Tutsis. And even that is quite a controversial title, because a lot of people point out that anyone who was against the Habyarimana regime, which was, you know, Habyarimana was a Hutu, a Hutu extremist, that they were also killed, whatever their ethnicity. They were, they, many Hutus died. Many Hutus died protecting and Tutsis. There was a lot of intermarriage. There were lots of mixed families. Yes. To call it a genocide of the Tutsis is itself a fairly controversial thing to do. I mean, now in Rwanda, you're not supposed to talk about what your ethnicity is. Everyone is just a Rwandan. And this is something the government has brought in to kind of eliminate 
this obsession with ethnicity and clan. But, um, you know, a lot of people are aware that uh, there's, a, there's a very heavy predominance of, of Tutsis within the government. And, and yes, most of the, the, the population are Hutu, and there are some Twa um, who are the sort of pygmy Ethnic, ethnic group. Yes. Yeah, so I guess my question is for all of uh, Kagame's violations of our ideals of Jeffersonian democracy, is there something to the argument? I mean, I guess he could justify his uh, holding on to power in a few ways. One of them, look at economic growth and I'm doing a good job. And then there's what he says officially about wanting to transition. But what about the fact that he is a strong man, but he has to show strength, especially against the backdrop of what it means to hold power and protect his people in Rwanda? There have been a series of elections in, in Rwanda, but I think a lot of people feel extremely uneasy about the results. For example, in this recent referendum on whether or not he could stand for more than two terms, um, which was really rushed through, um, he won 98% of the vote. And while I think he would probably have won the vote, I think 98% was a bit, uh, a bit, <laughs> a bit much for most observers. They thought that was a little bit un- unbelievable. He is generally seen as a force for stability, I think, within the country as well as outside I mean, in the international community. But um, people are also very worried that with so much power concentrated in his hands and showing no sign of, of wanting to stand down, this stability might be very, very short-lived because if you don't prepare a succession and you don't bolster institutions, uh, what happens when you exit the scene? So the government keeps using this this argument uh, of, uh, well, if it went for us, you know, who knows what right. chaos and, and bloodshed would ensue. But, you know, that's also a self-perpetuating prophecy. So let's get to the museums and the memorials. What caught, what caught my eye? How does this all show up in those uh, buildings? I wanted to write a piece because I've been going to Rwanda many, many times. And um, uh, in the years after the genocide, there, there were all these new museums that were set up to remember the genocide. It was sort of a case of never again. We, never, we must have the evidence to show people what happened here so that n- no one can ever claim that this didn't happen. And I think that's very important. And those are now actually, in a strange way, tourist attractions. I mean, people go to Rwanda to see those. They're extremely moving, very upsetting. They're very effective museums they recreate the individuality of the people who were who were murdered but i what i noticed on my last trip last year was that there are new uh, generation i would say of museums that are nothing to do with the genocide uh, directly and i thought that was really interesting because i'm used to visiting african countries that have you know maybe one museum or two but it seems to me rwanda for a very small country has got an awful lot of museums you know it tells you that the government um, and the institutions, the heritage institutions, the heritage industry are very interested in in building and creating a narrative and a legacy that will uh, will pass their messages on. And so specifically, how does this uh, show up? What do you see that raises antenna or radar? Yeah, well, the, one, the first one I visited was the one that had been set up to President uh, Juvenal Habyarimana, who, who was the Hutu president whose death triggered um, the genocide. And and what I hadn't realized before I went there is that the uh, plane uh, that that was brought down by this missile and there have been conflicting uh, claims of who brought brought the plane down, was it the RPF or was it the Hutu extremists who weren't happy with what Habyarimana was doing? I hadn't realized that it had fallen right next to the villa. So you go to see this this villa, which is a sort of fairly you know, modest villa done up in a 1980s, uh, slightly kitsch style. 
And then in the field next to the villa, there's all the debris from the plane in which two presidents, not just one, were killed. And I found that very sort of weird and spooky. And, you know, this is this is the crash that started the genocide. And what I found even more surreal was that uh, this is a museum where um, Rwandan uh, couples who are celebrating their weddings um, often go because it's got a very pretty garden and they set up a, a tent there and have their wedding receptions there. So here you've got this sort of this trigger incident um, and I think what the, the, the whole museum sort of reminds you um, is uh, it's a very paranoid museum. It was a house sort of imbued with Javier Imana's paranoia, his, his expectation that he was going to die violently. Um, so there are all these sensors on the stairs which tell you if someone's trying to creep in at night. There are safes that were kept in the presidential bedroom so that he could open the safe and bribe the people who are coming to kill him. There were hidden stairways with gun racks that could be run out, you know, so they could run into that attic. And you just sort of get the feeling of this, this was a president who knew he was going to die, you know, violently. And in fact, he was. Are these museums, do they demonstrate that Rwanda, this is this is a tough thing to do, but ha- has not done the proper justice and reconciliation as per the phrase that, you know, you would hope that a society who's been through this would have done? Yes, I think there's a lot of talk about reconciliation. Um, there, there are these famous gachacha trials where people who took part in the genocide are allowed to go and live back in the community as long as they confess to what they did. And in a way, that does seem like a very uh, positive uh, way of reconciling killers and victims. But in, a, in another way, it was just necessary because the, the prisons were just full, full, full of, of people who had taken part in the genocide. Um, and I think these the, the, the people who are then released live extremely, there's this un, uneasy, unhappy proximity between them and the people whose relatives they killed. For everything else, it seems like Kagame is a skilled propagandist. Yes, I mean, but I think I think the interesting things about museums is, is that many signals come out. Uh, these are definitely government institutions, and there's a, an intended signal, mm-hmm. but there are often other little messages, that the subtext that if you go there and you know something about the history, you you pick up on. I went to another museum, which is um, a military museum, and it's on the outskirts. It's on a tea estate, and it's on a hill overlooking a valley. And the RPF used this as their military base at one stage. And you can go and visit um, these trenches. There are these little burrows where you can see where people slept because they were afraid of being targeted with artillery or from the air. So the leaders of the RPF, including Kagame, uh, would go and sleep in these tiny little earthen burrows. That They feel a bit like graves when you go in them. It's slightly creepy. And uh, this is where they plan their strategy and the, they plan the sort of they planned their reintegration into Rwanda. Um, and it was all then sort of interrupted by the plane being brought down. But I found it, again, a very interesting museum because on the one hand, it's a great tribute to this, this united, focused, incredibly effective guerrilla force that was the RPF. I mean, they, they knew how to fight wars and they knew how to get things done. Uh, but at the same time, there are a lot of um, the leaders of the RPF, the commanders, who uh, who were sleeping in those burrows and taking part in those meetings with Kagame, who are now uh, living abroad and are wanted and, um, you know, have been targeted by assassination squads because they've fallen out with Kagame and they, you know, they, they have had unreconcilable differences and have had to flee the country. Again, I was quite surprised that this museum is, 
is, is there at all? Because you think this would remind people of then and now and how things have changed. Michaela Rong is the author of nonfiction books about Africa. Her latest is It's Our Return to Eat, the story of a Kenyan whistleblower. And she covered these uh, curious memorials in Rwanda for foreign policy. Thank you so much, Michaela. It's a pleasure. And now the spiel. There was an article today in the New York Times, Trump is testing the norms of objectivity in journalism. Good name for an indie band, Norms of Objectivity, bad thesis for an article. It starts like this. If you're a working journalist, then that grabbed me, cuz I am, and believe that Donald Trump is a demagogue, check, playing into the nation's worst racist and nationalistic tendencies, some of the worst, yeah, that he cozies up to anti-American dictators, eh, you know, strong men at least, and that he would be dangerous with control of the nuclear codes, yeah, sign on to that, how the heck are you supposed to cover him? I don't know. I do it every day. What I like to do is I document the things he says, and then I provide context for my listeners to decide if he's telling the truth. Quite often, he's not. But it seems to Jim Rutenberg, who wrote this article, that Trump represents a challenge, a challenge to what he calls the norms of objectivity. I don't think that's true. I think, if anything, he confirms that good journalistic process wins out in the end. In fact, the fundamental Trump media critique that we give Trump too much of it, I think that critique's been proven wrong. He's doing so horribly in the polls, not because of great reporting, just because of we film him and play what he says and let people decide. He doesn't subvert the norms of objectivity. In fact, to some extent, he justifies them. He is so bad, so loathsome, so superficially and apparently unhinged that a simple recitation of his words with just enough facts has sunk his candidacy and disgraced his party. Now, if your code of journalism, be that a code of convention or tradition or actual rules written down in a J school textbook. If that somehow gets in the way of conveying Trump's inadequacies, you're using the wrong code. In fact, I would suggest you're not even engaging in journalism. This piece fails to make its stated point. It doesn't even try to prove that Trump thwarts objectivity. It does take issue, not with objectivity, which is really hard to attain, but with balance, which is kind of pointless to even go for. Most broadly, he upsets balance, that idealistic form of journalism with a capital J we've been trained to always strive for. No, we haven't. I haven't. Good journalists don't think balance is to be strived for. Fairness, yes, but balance? Criticizing journalism for being unbalanced is the domain of partisans. Criticizing journalism for having false balance is the domain of scolds. Jeff Jarvis says this all the time. I think if journalism always has to have balance, pretty much can't be great journalism. You want fairness. So you might want to quote expressing the other party's point of view. You want to present the other side's best argument where appropriate, not with global warming because there's no factual basis to that, but maybe yes, with welfare reform. This was a strange, strange article. The premise was that covering Trump fairly could throw the election to Hillary Clinton. What? 
When does a journalist care? Oh, no. Good reporting that demonstrates that one option in a binary system is unsuitable might lead to the conclusion that the other option's the better one. Oh, no, we can't have that. Why not? Strange, strange article. It worried that a non-demagogic candidate could be helped if Trump was covered too harshly. This was a day after Trump's surrogates took to the airwaves to say, you're covering Trump too harshly. This was Rudy Giuliani on This Week. I think what he's talking about is the very unfair media coverage that uh, Republicans get. I know all of those uh, of you in the media don't believe this, but you really don't treat us the same way. Uh, the, 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 the allegations by Mrs. Smith, a gold star mother, about Hillary Clinton lying to her got about one-tenth of the coverage that the con situ- uh, situation got. Consider perhaps not media unfairness, but how each candidate reacted to the Gold Star parent complaint in question. Hillary Clinton said she feels a great deal of sympathy for the Gold Star parent's loss. Donald Trump said Mrs. Khan was being silenced and picked a fight with Kaiser Khan. The role of the media was to press record on the microphone as Trump talked into it. But on the front page of the New York Times was a real reminder of the Republican ticket and notions of objectivity. Headline, Pence on HIV Crisis, Prayer and Pragmatism. So last March in Indiana, there was an HIV outbreak. 90 people were infected in one county, drug addicts sharing needles, and Pence refused the needle exchange. He's against needle exchanges. He doesn't think it's moral. Facts rebut him. Studies indicate otherwise. Experts say needle exchanges are good at keeping down massive outbreaks of infection. But his policy was he was going to ban needle exchanges. So there was an outbreak. Once the outbreak was conveyed to him, he prayed on it. He talked to an expert. And then the next day he said, a needle exchange can go ahead. So let's be clear here. The pragmatism is a last second reversal in the face of overwhelming evidence. That's better than obstinance, but it's worse than, say, good policy to begin with. Pence had the incorrect policy. Okay, he changed his mind. I guess that's called pragmatism. So what are the implications of how Pence would govern or even how he governed in that exact instance? Here's a quote from the article. Pence signed legislation a couple months later that allows for needle exchanges in other counties. Good that can prove they are experiencing an epidemic of HIV or hepatitis C. So not just needle exchanges to prevent an epidemic. After the wildfire spreads, then we'll call in the bucket brigade. That, I guess, is pragmatism. Or not, because the New York Times changed its headline in later editions. Mike Pence's response to HIV outbreak, prayer, then a change of heart. Yeah, a change of heart. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson hopes to become the most garnished GIST producer. Steve Lichtai is now the most adorned executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers, he is the most prettified chief content officer of the Panoply Network, the GIST. Yes, indeed, the most bedazzled of podcasts, even including the Bedazzler podcast. Umperu, Peru, do Peru, and thanks for listening.